I would invite you this evening to turn with me to Psalm 111 as we continue to work our way through the Psalter. And we are slowly but surely getting to the end. And yet, as we make our way through the Psalter, I trust that we are learning many things regarding the work of the church, regarding the people of God and their call to worship the Lord. And so let us stand as we hear the word of the Lord. From Psalm 111, let us give our attention to the reading and hearing of God's holy word. Praise ye the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. For his work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endureth forever. He hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He hath given meat unto them that fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He hath showed his people the power of his works, that he might give them the heritage of the heathen. The works of his hands are verity and judgment, and all his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever, and are done in truth and uprightness. He sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we do give thee thanks for reminding us of the truths that we find in scriptures, in the scriptures. And we ask, O Lord, that as we gather tonight to hear thy word, to meditate upon it, that you would indeed give us hearts that desire it, that you would give us hearts and minds that would receive that word. And we ask, O Lord, that by the power of thy Holy Spirit, you would move upon this one who preaches. And we pray that we would see Jesus, that we would see the glory of our God, and that we would indeed receive the truth that we find herein. Give us understanding, we ask, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we have come to the fifth book of the Psalter. If you remember in our study, the Psalter is divided into five books. And we began that last and final um, book five that began in Psalm 105 and, or 106 and goes to the very end of the Psalter. But as we think upon um, the flow of the Psalms, um, again, I remind you that these are not chronological uh, their grouping of psalms, we see a grouping here in Psalms 111 and the uh, following uh, five psalms, which form what is called the Hallelujah Psalms. Um, so there are certain groupings, the Hallelujah Psalms, we see the grouping of the uh, Psalms of Ascent that we will look at um, later on. Uh, we see the grouping of the, um, the Law of God there in Psalm 119. So we see various groupings um, scattered throughout the Psalter. But as we make our way, I'm reminded of Dr. Palmer Robertson's work on the Psalms. 
where he comes to this final book and he calls this the consummation. Because here, the fix is not upon the enemies of God as we see in the previous Psalms, but here our gaze is upon the King and the Lord of the church who calls people who've been scattered throughout the earth, calls them into a permanent place where their duty is to worship the living God. And so as we draw our attention to the first of the Hallelujah Psalms, there in Psalm 111, we find there as we go back to Psalm 107, the psalmist begins this section. He sets the stage for us to remind us that God has redeemed his people, that by his goodness and by his works, He has delivered them out of darkness. He's brought them out of the shadow of death. He has brought them out of the nations. And then as the the psalm begins to flow, we find here in Psalm 110, that psalm of David, which is the last of those few psalms of David there in that last section of the Psalter, we find the Lord... uh, describing for us the permanence of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this is a a good way for us to, to make our way into these hallelujah psalms because as he speaks there in Psalm 110, verse 4, he says, The Lord has sworn he will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so that priesthood of Melchizedek is an eternal priesthood. We see Melchizedek there in the book of Genesis. And and, uh, it is a reminder to us that the priesthood of Christ is eternal. And so as he speaks of that priesthood, he immediately flows into this first of the hallelujah psalms, calling the people to give praise unto the Lord. And as they give praise unto the Lord, they, they... see the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They see his glorious work in the midst of the nations. And so Psalm 111, 112, 113, and all of those hallelujah psalms all speak of the glorious work that we have in declaring the wonders and the works of of our God. Now I'd like for us to to think tonight as we look at Psalm 111 particularly that Psalm 111 is seen as a psalm that celebrates the Passover in the giving in the salvation of God. If you go back to Matthew 26 there is Jesus is celebrating with his disciples that final Passover meal. There in Psalm 100, and, or in Matthew 26, there's the plot to kill Jesus. Jesus keeps the Passover. He keeps the Passover, which is told in the Old Testament is a Passover that is to be remembered for how long? Every generation. So even in the Old Testament, the people of God were to remember the Passover as a perpetual feast. And so here the Lord Jesus Christ keeps this perpetual feast, 
with his disciples. Now the problem is, and I see this even among many of the Adventist groups because they are so uh, fragmented um, among themselves, but one of the particular things that is noted among the Adventists is they observe all the old feast days of the Old Testament. They still continue to observe the old feast days. And we are have the tendency to say, well, we no longer observe the feast days, but we're still to keep the Passover. But the, 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 uh, the form has changed. We are under the new covenant, and so we keep the Passover feast. And so Jesus keeps the Passover here. He institutes the Lord's Supper before he is tried. And it says that as they are there meeting for that Passover feast, there in chapter 26 of Matthew, verse 30, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And the question is, what were they singing as they went out into the Mount of Olives? As they, as they have just celebrated the Passover feast, what are they singing? They're singing the Hallelujah Psalms. Perhaps they're singing Psalm 111 or 112, because there is a connection between Psalm 111 and 112. So this particularly, um, most scholars would agree, most commentators would agree that this is a psalm that is to be sung at the Passover. But here as we consider this psalm before us, and you don't see this in your English translations, but you would see this perhaps in the... the uh, in the Hebrew translation. But verses 2 through 10 are arranged in alphabetical form according to the Hebrew alphabet. And so verse 10 would begin with Aleph. Verse, or verse 2 would begin with Aleph. Verse 3 would begin with Bet. Uh, verse uh, 4 would begin with Gimel. Dalit and Hay and on down the line through the Hebrew alphabet. And so they would be arranged in a way to remind the people that this is why we give praise unto God. And so as we consider here uh, in verse 1, this is the primary duty, this is the primary call to the people of God to give praise unto the Lord. And so this is why we call it a hallelujah psalm. We have seen a few of those hallelujah psalms previously uh, in the Psalter, but they come primarily at the end of the Psalter and not at the beginning. You don't see any of these hallelujah psalms in the beginning, but you see them as you come to the end. And so here we see the psalmist begins by saying, Praise ye the Lord. There's a call to the people of God to give praise to the Lord. And the question is, and this has come up in, in some discussion, and this is, has come up in, in my own study of the Psalter, because this causes great controversy. Where in the Psalms do we see uh, the emphasis upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we certainly see that in Psalm 110. We see that in Psalm 22. We see that in um, a number of other Psalms, the emphasis upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's ironic here in Psalm 111, and we have to remember that we are Trinitarian. We are not oneness. We are Trinitarian, and so we believe that God is both one and triune. 
And so here in Psalm 111, we see that the praise of God is to the Trinity. The praise of God indeed focuses upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He yields his scepter, as we have seen there in Psalm 110, that he rules over his enemies. He claims rightful throne. He claims his rightful authority on his throne. And he will judge those who oppose his rule in the day of his wrath. And as Psalm 110 closes out, I think it's a reminder to us that as Psalm 111 begins, even though this is a Trinitarian psalm, all of the psalms in essence are Trinitarian, the focus is upon the triune God, particularly we remember that we give praise unto this one who has sworn that he will not repent, that he will bring about the eternal priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as the psalmist breaks forth in praise, there's this call to consider the glorious work of God. That's what Psalm 111 is really calling us to. The psalmist begins by exhorting the people to praise God, particularly for His grace and for the wonders of all of his goodness and mercy. And so we find here in Psalm 111, the people are called to give praise for his good providence. We find that the people are called to give praise to God for the salvation and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are to give praise to the work of his spirit who continues to sustain the people of God. We find here that we not only yield ourselves to the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we do so by trusting in that perfect sacrifice that he has made for us. And so the psalmist says, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. And I think this is instructive here as we begin looking at verse 1, that as the psalmist begins to give praise to the Lord, he says, I praise the Lord with my whole heart. In the assembly of the upright. We, we kind of saw this this morning, and we've seen this in our study of Luke, as we, as we look at those uh, scribes and, and uh, elders of Israel. They did not have a desire to worship the Lord in sincerity and in truth. There was that outward worship. There was that formality. There was that, that, um, that thing that we oftentimes fall into, and that is just the trappings of worship. But here the psalmist doesn't just give himself outwardly, outwardly to some formality of worship, but he gives his whole heart to the worship of God. But notice here, he does it where? Not in his prayer closet. He does it in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. And this is where primarily the work of worship is done. Uh, it is right and good for us to, to read the scriptures and to pray in our families and particularly privately. But it is in the public worship of the living God that worship and praise primarily are given to the Lord. 
And we miss this in the day and age in which we live. And so that word hallelujah there in Hebrew meaning praise ye the Lord is a call to give praise. The whole mind, heart, and will are included in the worship of God. How can one worship God outwardly when his heart is not engaged? When his mind is not engaged? When his affections and his will are not engaged? And so here is, is the heart of, of, the, of this first verse. That it is with the whole heart, it is with the totality of mind, heart, and will that we give praise unto God. What is the summary of our obedience to the moral law? We are to love God with what? Our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then we are to love neighbor as ourselves. And so our duty to God primarily involves loving Him with the whole heart, with the whole mind and soul. And so if we simply come, as some false religions do, with this outward trapping of what they call worship, and our heart is not engaged, how can we understand what is being done? And yet the psalmist here in his desire to give praise to the Lord God with his whole heart does so within the corporate worship of the people of God. And so the question is asked, what is the duty of the people of God? There's a sense in which we, we believe that um, the work of the church is done by uh, the pastor, by, by the elders. But you know what? The work of the church is done by whom? All of us. I remind you there of that oldest psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 90, where Moses utters that prayer, speaks of God as having been with us through every generation, God who has no beginning and no end. And he says in verse 16, Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God beware upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. And here the psalmist tells us that the glorious work of God is seen where? The beauty of the Lord our God is seen where? Within his people. And so as we corporately worship, we see the beauty of the Lord our God. In some churches you will see behind the pulpit written those words, holiness unto the Lord. And yet this is a holy work. The people of God doing the work that God has called them to do. What is that work? Primarily that work is worship. And here in verse 1 it says that work is done within the assembly of the upright. In the congregation of the saints. We believe that, that that Sabbath rest, that remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy is a perpetual commandment that is with us in the entirety of this final age of the church. 
And so we are to continue to observe the Holy Sabbath. But what is the primary, primary work of the church on the Lord's Day? It is worship. And that is a glorious work. It is a, it is a holy work. It is a, it is a precious work. But it is a work that we are called to do. And so as the psalmist begins to give praise unto the, to the Lord his God, as he gives praise unto this triune God with the entirety of his heart, he considers that as he gives praise to the Lord, he gives praise for many things. He offers praise unto the Lord for his work indeed is glorious and good. And so the psalmist says that the work of God is a work that is to be done by considering all that he has done. There in verse 2, the psalmist says, The works of the Lord are great. What are the works of God? Well, the works of God are, are evident around us. We see... The works of God in what? We see the works of God in creation. And where else do we see the works of God? Children, do you know from your catechism? See the works of God in His providence. We see the works of God every day of our lives. We, we wake up in the morning and, and do we ever really stop and consider the great works of God around us? You know, we saw... A number of weeks ago, the the fire and the smoke coming from the forest fires in Canada. And I was amazed how that smoke could travel so far down because we could smell it when we were up in Appleton one day. And uh, it it was quite interesting to see. And yet here is something that is a work of God. It's great work of God in the midst of his people. But notice the psalmist says that the works of the Lord are great. Every work that God has done is great. In all of His great works of creation, as He laid out the beam of the earth, the psalmist says He stretches out the earth like a curtain. He he forms the earth, He fashions it, and he, He creates people, He creates animals, He creates sea creatures, He covers the earth with the entirety of all of His creatures. This is a glorious work that we see there in the opening verses of Genesis. But we see other great works of the Lord our God. We see the continuing work of His providence in the lives of His people. We we see the great work of God's grace in, in salvation, in that wonderful working of the Lord Jesus Christ as our Redeemer, as our priest. We see that great work of God. But what does the psalmist say about the works of God? They are to be sought out of all them that have pleasure in them. What is the the thing that you delight in? What is the thing that brings you pleasure? For all of us, we have a number of, of desires. For all of us, we have many things that bring us pleasure. Some of you would think I was crazy if I told you one of the most pleasurable things was raising a dog and a cat. <laughs> that seems like a strange thing. But what is it that gives us pleasure? It is the works of God. 
And the psalmist says these things are pleasurable. These things are right and good for us to consider. They seek out the works of God that they might find pleasure in them. I remember those words of that great um, Scottish runner who later became a missionary to China as he was running. And he says, as he was running, he felt the pleasure of God. The question is for us, do we feel the pleasure of God when we consider his works? Do we consider the marvelous works that God has done? Well, the psalmist says they are to be sought out of whom? All them that have pleasure in them, all those who delight in them. Calvin reminds us that the works of God are sought by all those who have pleasure in them. And the question is, how can one find pleasure in the works of God when the heart is deceitful, when we as vile and sinful creatures, we as children of Adam, have sinned against Him. How do we find pleasure and delight in these things? Well, that's the work of God's grace. Until the Lord works by His Spirit in the heart of a sinner, until the Lord draws him unto Christ, he will have no delight in those things. I remember the time when I was living morally right as I was raised to do as a Roman Catholic. I, I felt like I was doing everything morally right. But I realized at one point in my life there's something missing. And when the Lord opened my eyes, when He removed that veil, He removed the scale from my eyes, and I began to see clearly as the blind man in John 6, I began to see things more clearly. Then there was a greater joy and a greater delight in knowing the works of the Lord. What is it in life that you do? Perhaps you are an engineer. Perhaps you are a builder. Perhaps you have other skills and gifts. Perhaps you as young people are considering a number of callings. But anybody that has a particular calling or gift, what does he do? He, he works that out in his life. Some, some businesses require continuing education. And isn't it funny that we go through life training for a trade, training for a work, training for a labor, but some people never stop to consider that the life of the Christian involves studying the works of God and seeking them out that he might find pleasure in them. There's a call here really to meditate upon the glorious works of God, for they are indeed to be seen. He says that this work that he considers there in verse 2 is an honorable and glorious work. There are many works in life that are right. There are many works in, in life that are uh, right and lawful. But this is the one work that is honorable and glorious. It is honorable and glorious because it delights in what the Lord our God is doing. The Father, in having created the world with the Son and with the Spirit, the Father, drawing His elect 
unto the Son. The Son redeeming His elect. The Holy Spirit applying that work of redemption unto the elect. This is an honorable and glorious work. And as we see that work displayed in the life of the church, it is a glorious work and shows us that the righteousness of the Lord endures for how long? Forever. That Passover feast will end. Baptismal services will end. But there's one thing that will not end, and that is the righteousness of the Lord. In eternity, the righteousness of the Lord will remain. The priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ will remain. And so this is an honorable work that we spend the entirety of our earthly life doing. It's honorable. It's glorious. Do we delight in that work? Do we find fulfillment in this work? I dare say that perhaps we find that this work is oftentimes mundane. Oh, there's, there's nothing really significant about coming and, and singing and, and praying and, and uh, hearing someone when preach. But this is an honorable and glorious work. It speaks of all that the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 4 as the psalmist makes his way through verses 10 through 12 using the, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet to describe how we are to give praise unto God, why we are to give praise unto our God. First of all, the main point, we give praise unto our God because of His great and mighty works. But what are those works? He, he's, he's really point by point showing us that we give praise to God for His works, for an honorable and glorious work. But what does He say there in verse 4? He hath made His wonderful works to be remembered. There's something about memory that's amazing. I know when... Uh, my step-grandfather died and the pastor that I grew up with and who I think was influential in me coming to the Lord as I heard him preach many times. He said to us at the graveside, he said, um, there's a wonderful thing about memory because all of those wonderful times and occasions that you had with him are remembered. But to me, there's nothing more amazing than the memory of the wonderful works of God. But notice what the psalmist says. They are works that are to be remembered, never to be forgotten. Isn't it strange for those who profess to be believers to forget the works of God? How do you forget that? Well, here he, he says there that the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. How can you forget that? Don't you see that every day? Don't you see the graciousness of the Lord every day? Don't you see the fullness of His compassion? He doesn't just say the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He says the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Perhaps there are some translations that leave out the word full. I, I think there's something missing there. It's not just remembering the compassion of the Lord, but remembering the fullness of His compassion. That He had mercy on a wretched sinner. 
like me, that he has gracious compassion toward all of his people. And he begins to wear, uh, make his way here through his address by reminding us that God gives meat unto them that fear him. Now we see the the general providence of God in all of his creation, that God, by his goodness, gives to all of his creatures. He provides rain, he provides food. But notice what the psalmist says here. He's given meat unto whom? Them that fear him. And again, as we, we think about this psalm, it's the psalmist is reminding us of the grace and the goodness of God toward his people. And so that meat that he gives unto them that fear him is those wonderful graces in the life of the believer. Those wonderful graces that he gives to us. And then he begins to remind us of the uh, covenant of which God is mindful of. We think of the wonderful works of God that we are to remember. But there's something that God remembers and does not forget. And we've seen this um, already in the Psalms. But he is mindful of his covenant. What is that covenant that God is mindful of? That he entered into a covenant of redemption with the Son, with the Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all three members of the Trinity entered into a covenant of redemption before the creation of the world to redeem a people through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God swore an oath that he would maintain that covenant. And we see that covenant in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we go back to Psalm 110, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. And so God remembers his covenant. He is mindful of his loving kindness. That's what that word entails there, covenant, is the loving kindness of the Lord. We've seen throughout the Old Testament how God shows that covenant in many ways, in many forms. The Abrahamic covenant is seen in the, the circumcision of male children. The covenant of Noah is seen in the giving of that promise that he would not flood the earth again, that rainbow in the sky. It's a reminder that God is faithful to his covenant. The covenant of David that reminds us of the eternal priesthood that will continue. And so we see all of these Wonderful ways in which God remembers his covenant. But verse 6 says, He, that is the Lord our God, has shown his people the power of his works. The power of God's works. We have, we've already seen that. We saw that um, in Psalm 107. Let the redeemed of the Lord say, Those whom he hath redeemed from the Hand of the enemy, he gathered them from where? Out of the nations of the earth. He gathered them out. He, he brought them into a glorious habitation. And so Psalm 107, Psalm 106, shows us the power of God's works. We saw that in the Old Testament. 
We continue to see that in the life of the church. But as he says here, he showed his people the power of his works in order that, so that he may give them the heritage of the heathen. As the Lord in his work of redemption gathers the people out of the nations of the earth, gathers them from the east, the west, the south, and the north, brings them together. He does so that he might give them the heritage of the heathen. In other words, God will give the Gentile nations, God will give those Gentile nations as a heritage. And so there will be one people, one covenant of grace, among both Jew and Gentile. And as God draws the heathen out of the nations of the earth, we see the great power of God's work. No amount of human effort or work could ever accomplish what God does by His goodness and providence. The works of God indeed are plain to those who delight in them. And so the psalmist begins to to open up for us how we might seek out the works of God. Think for a moment, ponder works of God. Think of the works of His hands. Again, the, the picture here for us as humans is that with this visual of, of God having hands and doing a work, we find that His works are verity and judgment, that all of His works are true and right. There's a firmness, there's a, there's a solidity to that work of God, that His commandments indeed are sure. They stand fast, forever and ever, and are done in truth and uprightness. As I said earlier, there's some things that will change and will be no more when we stand with Christ in glory. But another thing that will remain forever and ever and ever, even into eternity, is the commandments of God. They are done in truth and uprightness. But when we stand in glory, when we are with Christ... Be it for a thousand years, we will find that our sanctification will be perfected. That we will be entirely sanctified in heaven. And so the the commandments of God stand firm forever, reminding us that it is all the work of God's grace, grace. He sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. That Abrahamic covenant, the gospel that we see in the administration of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, that was a covenant that was a perpetual covenant. The covenant of David was a perpetual covenant. All of those administrations of of God's covenant under the Old Testament are forever. Holy and reverend is his name. Name of God indeed is holy because it it shows the people of God that their God indeed is holy. And because God is holy, because God's name is reverend, 
We are to walk in holiness. We are to revere his name. We are to be reminded that our God indeed is holy. And so the psalmist reminds us of the wonderful works of God, those extraordinary and miraculous works seen in the Old Testament, the food that he's given unto his people, the provision that he's given. Do you realize that one of the meats, one of the provisions that God gives to his people are the ordinances? What are the ordinances of God? Word, the sacraments, prayer. These three primarily are the ordinances of God. He's given them as meat to the church that we might remember his covenant. We will be coming to the Lord's table this next Lord's Day. I trust that as we come, you will have prepared yourselves. You don't just show up for a meal, generally. There's some preparation, there's some thought, there's some intent going into that. So if we come to this covenant meal, there should be some preparation involved in that. But in coming, we are coming to a covenant meal to remind us of what Christ has done, to remind us of the works of God. And so we want to come with that intent of understanding more fully what Christ has done for us. We see in the bread and the wine, the the pouring out of himself, the offering of himself as a sacrifice for sin. And so he has sent us these wonderful meats, these wonderful things for our benefit, for our instruction. And so the sacraments are are, are, are a, a great thing or to remind us of the works of God. We see that in the baptism of an infant. It's not just an empty rite. It's not just a ritual. It's not just saying, okay, we're giving that child a name. We're just uh, pouring a little water on his or her head and, and just going through the motions. No. We see in the baptism of an infant, we see in the baptism of an adult, the work of God where? In the assembly of the upright. In the congregation we see the works of God. Oh, don't ever forget that the the baptism of our covenant children is a reminder of God's work in our midst. You know, sometimes we, we think about the loss of members. You know what to me is amazing? Is the addition that we often see in the life of the church. The wonderful works of God in the midst of His people. And so as he's recalling all of these wonderful works of God, as as he is reminded there of the redemption that is sent to His people, the salvation from sin, and what comes with sin, the miseries of sin. And so salvation delivers us from sin and its miseries. It brings us into a safe place. We see that as the people of God under the Old Covenant were brought out of Egypt by way of Exodus, we see that glorious picture of the promises of God to Abraham, to Israel, to David, at all of those various points in history. God drawing His people out. God with His outstretched hand God working those signs and wonders in the midst of the Egyptians. The people walking across on dry ground. 
How can we forget all of that? That's why we are not just simply New Testament Christians. We are Christians of both the Old and New Testament because we see that one continual story from Genesis to Revelation of God's marvelous work of redemption. And the psalmist concludes here, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. It's not the end. It is the beginning of wisdom. The writer of the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but what? Fools despise wisdom and instruction. A fool will never take counsel. A fool will never regard the wisdom of God. But here the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We learn from the the life of the Lord Jesus Christ how to be wise in in facing our enemies. How to be wise in in dealing with one another. how How to think rightly. How to live rightly in the world. And the Christian begins to think wisely. The Christian begins to think in a way that is pleasing unto the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. A good understanding have all they that do His commandments. This fear of the Lord is the right path for the believer. The fear of the Lord is the right path that will guide us through life. Some of you will be going off to college. One of you will be going off to the great Northwest. And as you go to the places where God has called you, whether it's in college or whether it's later in some calling that He places upon your life, it is the fear of the Lord that will lead you through all of your journey, through all of the places where the Lord will bring you. And so you need wisdom. You need wisdom in in right choices. You need wisdom in in life partners, in in choosing a a man or a woman as a a helpmeet or as one whom you will spend your life with. You will need wisdom in, in how you deal with family matters. You need wisdom in, in how to deal with issues of life. But here the psalmist concludes by saying a good understanding of God's commandments is a right thing for the believer. Do we have a good understanding of God's commandments? As we come to Psalm 119, we will see that particular psalm divided by the Hebrew alphabet. Here's another psalm that is divided by the Hebrew alphabet, making it um, easier for us to consider the works of God, the, the commandments of God, and yet to have a right understanding of His commandments is the way of wisdom. That is the right path. And some of you are 
young, starting out in life. Some of you are learning how to drive for the first time, scaring mom and dad to death. Uh, some of you are, are learning um, what it is to live in this fallen and, and miserable world. And yet it takes wisdom. Not wisdom that you learn in a classroom. Not wisdom that you, you learn from uh, psychology or from philosophy or from other um, sciences, but wisdom that comes from God. This is a good place to begin. This gives us a right understanding. Psalm 1 begins, and perhaps some of you have it memorized. What does Psalm 1 begin with? Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scorner, but his delight is where? In the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And there the psalmist begins the entirety of the psalm with this call to consider that those who are blessed are those who fear God. Those that remember His commandments, remember to do them. Those who delight in the law of God, they indeed are blessed. And this is the way that we are to walk. Not according to the counsel of this world, not according to the counsel of the ungodly, but the walk that we are to choose that wise path is the path that leads to holiness path that leads to delighting in the law of god oh there's many things more that could be said here from psalm 111 but as we conclude the psalm this evening as we think about the fact that there is the worship of the triune God, primarily the theme of this psalm points us to the Son of God. It points us to His glory. It points us to His righteousness. It points us to His mighty works. It points us to His faithfulness as a covenant-keeping God. It is a theme that runs throughout all of redemptive history. The redemption of God's people. Friends, we don't think enough about the work of Christ. We don't think about enough about the work that God does in our midst. And yet the call for us tonight as we consider this is to think wisely about the works of Christ. To think more and more intently about what He has done those who love the works of the Lord will delight to meditate upon them. And so Christian worship begins with redemption. Christian worship begins with the praise of God. Christian worship continues throughout the entirety of our life. That work will not end until Christ returns. But in this age in which we live, we are called to think upon Christ, to think upon the work 
of His Gospel. To think about the doctrines of grace. What does it mean that God unconditionally called me to Himself? What does it mean that His grace is irresistible? What does it mean that He preserves His saints? Those are not just doctrines etched in history. Those are doctrines that should be etched in our hearts because they remind us what Christ has done, not what we have done. It is not me that holds myself. It is not you that holds yourself. It is Christ who holds his own. And so the question is tonight, are you thinking upon the works of Christ? Are you delighting in that? Do you delight with the psalmist that the works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure in them? Oh, friends, let us resolve tonight to give our hearts wholly unto the work of God. For this is a reasonable, it's an honorable, and it's a glorious work that we must continue to do until Christ returns again. May we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do give all glory, honor, and praise unto Thee for the glorious work that You have done in the midst of Thy people. We thank You that even with the Father and with the Spirit, You continue to bring about that glorious work. You continue to perfect Thy people even unto the end. O Lord our God, give us a fear of the living God. Give us a reverence for this God. Give us a desire for holiness, a desire to meditate upon thy word. O Lord, we confess that we have not given honor and glory unto thy work, that we've not considered that work enough. Lord, we confess that we don't often think upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We've heard the call to to pray in the name of Christ because of the glorious work that He has done, because of what He has done to redeem His people. Oh Lord our God, we do pray that we would remember Thy works, that we would meditate upon Christ, and that we would find that our rest in Him indeed is a delight. Bless this word to the benefit of our souls, we ask in Thy holy and precious name. Amen.